Cavalcade Audio Productions presents Star Drifter, the science fiction patio book series written and read by David Collins Rivera. Book Three, Risk Analysis. Chapter 11. The handle bore a button. After fumbling a bit, I pressed it and turned. The hatch flew open with a whoosh. There was no airlock in this thing, no room for one. No room even for the hatch to have a mechanical crank, which meant it had to open outwardly, the exact opposite of standard design. Without a mechanism to pull the door back against interior pressurization, it would be impossible for outside rescuers to get in the ship if it were in vacuum, or for someone inside to get out. I didn't think about any of that just then, because the door smacked into my deformable faceplate and therefore my nose. That should have hurt, but I was screaming again, too scared to notice. Somehow I held on to the handle. No. That's a lie. The sleeve of my simple pressure suit had caught on the hook of the J, and I just hung there in another dimensional reality by the fabric and rubberized plastic covering my arm. But there were rungs inside the hatchway, and with my free hand, I grabbed one. I grabbed one and tried to pull myself up. I was caught on the handle. I yanked hard to ungather the sleeve and suddenly felt my ears pop. I had a leak right there from my cuff. Crap! At the level of the floor, there was no increase in weight. This thing didn't have artificial gravity. That would have been extraneous, unrequired for the ship's intended purpose. I moved up easily now, a fat, weightless man. Foggy helmet. Hard to breathe, hard to breathe, hard to breathe! In, in, in! Head above the decking. I saw the man in the pilot's chair. The cockpit was so small, I was just looking straight up at him. He saw me too, looking down and back over his arm. But he was fighting with his harness or some cables or something and and couldn't seem to get loose. Something was wrong with his face. He didn't have a face. What? Oh, God. He had no helmet either. He was asphyxiating. And with a hole in my suit, so was I. Within two hours, John and Stina, free of their bickering for a time, had penetrated the temporary wireless security system installed on that big access tube. This is live. SS-1 informed us as he brought up a feed from the cameras in the gantry. 
It's as wide as a city street, Chris commented, impressed, while noting workers and load bots walking back and forth. They're awfully busy, I added. What are they working on? Without a word, Stina brought up a list of parts requests and sign-offs. This has been culled from the most recent decrypts, John explained. There's a lot of radio talk back and forth, but General Store is making plans to run a hard-wired data line to the station. Most of its chatter will get channeled through there, and we'll be cut out of the conversation. Is there anything we can do about it? Mavis asked from the cockpit. Her voice was steady and clear, all assurance, all business now. We'll need to talk to their delivery officer to confirm the pickup order for the parts, and at least one of us will have to get in there to receive them. How do we uh, even get them uh, out of the station, let alone aboard Shady Lady? Dieter asked, grunting because he couldn't reach something deep inside the bulkhead. He was forward in the short companionway between the cockpit and common room. Laying on his back with an access panel open and arm deep in machinery, he was swapping out air filters. All he had to occupy himself with at the moment was life support, so he was underfoot. One problem at a time, please, the captain wrangled. General Storm must have a crew of a few hundred, I observed. Two hundred eleven, Stina put in. Two hundred eleven. That's nowhere near enough for one of us to walk around inside it anonymously. We'd be strangers, and the crew would spot us immediately. The only way to come at them is from inside the station, posing as freight handlers or something sent to pick up the propagators. We'll need fake clearance, Chris considered. That's impossible without access to the station's personnel records, John said. We can't create new identities, only modify existing ones. Whoa, now, this is sounding like spy work, I complained. RML shot me a glare, but SS1 shook his head in disagreement. Placing one or more of us in the employee record of some company aboard this station is the only way to get security clearance to even walk around, he explained. It's essentially a small city in there. I'm seeing the usual mixed bag of private and commercial radio data, including advertisements for small businesses and public service announcements. There's a fair amount of project-related stuff, too, but very few details. Most of the sensitive information will probably be on hardwired networks. Important things will be isolated, Stina appended. General Store will probably run that data line through the access tube, then, Dieter offered. If that's true, I said, we'll never be able to put a shunt in place. Security will be covering these very same vid feeds we're looking at. They'd see someone messing around with the data cables. They will, Chris agreed, averting his eyes from me, which was just fine. On the captain's orders, we'd shaken hands like real men and avoided contact thereafter. John waved at the image to bring one of the camera feeds forward, and then he expanded it. People have been moving through there steadily. From what I've overheard, active and passive bioscanners are everywhere on station, laced throughout the bulkheads, floors, and ceilings. They sample everybody's physical specifications against their logged IDs all day long. If you enter an area you aren't cleared for, the scanners pick it up immediately and alert security. There are no ID tags to forge or lose. This is the work order about one of those security systems for the tube, Stina added, 
bringing it up over John's feed. He gave her a dirty look and moved it aside, but didn't close it out of hand, which was an improvement. Looks like we have two shifts before they start work, I mentioned, circling the scheduled time with a finger whirl in the air. Can we get a crack in place before then? Not without a hardware connection to the station's data lines first, John reiterated firmly. You can't see them in these feeds, but there's a temporary security post right at the airlock for this tube. Three station security officers with a portable ident. No one goes in or out without going through them. The ident is physically plugged into the station data system. Mylike Vernier is hardwired all throughout. Really? That seems... Primitive? John supplied, looking at me with a tight grin. Inconvenient? Slow? It's all those things. But there is a station net available wirelessly, I told him, gesturing for my retinals to bring up a home screen, which I then pushed to the Tri-D display above us. An ad for a coffee kiosk somewhere on the station appeared. It looked good, much better than the powdered stuff we had on Shady Lady. Of course there is, but all data on this station is given a security ranking. The wireless net is designed to only transfer data within a very narrow set of rankings. Again, it's an old-fashioned method of doing things. Inefficient and probably cumbersome to use. It's also pretty much foolproof. We can get in, Stina supplied with a neutral tone that made her point invisible. Personnel records aren't showing up wirelessly, John said. You need a hardware hack that'll give you greater access? I put to him. Yes, and that's a problem, SS1 replied, because I didn't bring any equipment for it. This wasn't going to be that kind of job. No, of course not, I muttered, thinking. Everyone else seemed to be doing the same, but I eventually got up and went to my locker amidships. Digging through my flight bag, I came up with a small plastic box containing some fine tools and small parts. Can you use any of these? I asked as I came back to the group, tossing the box to John. He opened it, dumping the random contents on the table, and sorted through the pry tools, twist grips, and smaller bits and pieces. Hmm, I don't see how. What about those con pipes? I try to keep extras with me. What if we put one of those on the data line and shunt it that way? We can run a cable right back to here. John just stared at it. Would that work? Mavis asked him. Well, in theory, maybe, but it would be an obvious hack. Anyone looking at it would see what we did, and anyone looking at the network traffic would see a delay in response times. They make special penetration equipment to get around those problems, but like I said, I don't have any with me. These con pipes weren't designed for that kind of job. But they would give us access until security discovered them? The captain pressed. Sure, I guess, but if they can find the hack easily, what's the point? The point is, Chris injected, we're working the problem. We go one step at a time and solve each issue as it comes up. If the comp pipe will give you guys a door into the personnel records, you'll also have an interface for the station's ident database, am I right? Those two have to be linked. Yeah, they would be, John complained. But ident is expressly built for privacy and security. It's a universal system across all the territories. I wouldn't even know how to begin cracking it. I can do it, Stina repeated blandly, but gave John a look that might have been challenging. Or maybe she had gas. 
SS-1 just tisked and waved her off. It's a plan, or the start of one anyway, Mavis stated, in a tone that left no doubt we were receiving our marching orders. From this point on, we do whatever it takes to get inside that station. John was far more experienced with physical hacks than was Stina, and had more EVA time logged, so he got the job of overseeing Dieter's part of the operation. The engineer had to be quite hands-on here, because the cable we were targeting required the use of heavy cutting and prying tools to even lay bare. If we'd been strapped for talent, I think I might have been able to stand in for SS-1 in this particular instance, since I'd been installing and using conpipes for years. They were useful for making a wide variety of gunnery and ship data systems on an even wider range of vessels talk to each other with the kind of efficiency actual combat required. It was a simple enough hack in the comfort of a ship, but I had no burning desire to be out there with them, clomping around on the inside ring of the station. Maintenance, I'm not seeing the junction anywhere here. Are you sure this is the right section? Blue unit, that's what's on the ticket. You're almost there, blue team, Chris responded, answering John's query. There had been a question about whether the HUD in Shady Lady's pressure suit helmets could display the 3D hull terrain with recognizable navigation and tracking symbolism. It looked like they were getting a good enough feedback to maintain their bearings. The exterior of any station was a wilderness of pipes, cables, protrusions, access panels, and many other unknowable things. This one was further heaped with hundreds of tall multi-spec antennae and sensor arrays of extreme precision, all dedicated to the free jump tests. Pinpointing a specific location without some sort of map or diagram of the station's upper hull required either intimate knowledge of the place or blind luck. We had no maps, knowledge, or visually impaired fortune. Only a lot of reasoned deduction by a small but highly motivated team of experts. Maintenance, we don't... Oh, wait, I see it. Proceeding with assessment, Charlie. Understood, blue unit. Update in ten. Maintenance, roger that. Talk to you in one zero minutes. After analyzing the terminology and operating procedures from the cracked radio transmissions of individual workers out on EVA, of which there were at least a dozen at any one time performing exterior repairs, maintenance, or inspections, we came up with the idea of sending our people out there using the station's standard encryptions. With a quick call for clearance to pedestrian control, using familiar lingo and the proper frequencies, we got a go-ahead to do an Inspection Class 3, referring, in this case, to a fictitious repair assessment for a series of pressurized drolic lines under a particular combing somewhere out in those metallic woods. A small sub-department of orbital control, Pedestrian Control, or PC, was specifically dedicated to keeping tabs on any and all individuals walking about on the exterior of a space station. 
They didn't care about work orders or even the exact job being performed, only about who was out there and where they'd be, just in case emergency responders needed to find them. The back-and-forth chatter between a repair team and its department was usually technical and tedious, and no one in PC ever bothered listening closely. It was all logged, however, so Dieter, John, and Chris kept to a script. Having been born and raised on a space settlement over in Jarden's system, as well as having a mother who had been, and still was, a lifer in orbital control over there, I knew very well how this sort of office worked. PC was usually orbital control's dumping ground for stupid, unambitious managers and the congenital screw-ups among their operators. It was a low-traffic, low-pressure kind of job, intended to have people to match. Even though the ones on my like Vernier were probably a cut above the usual mixed bag, it seemed likely to me that, if we were careful to follow standard procedures and generally act like we knew what we were doing, they'd probably believe that we did. The really hard part of this EVA had been in the planning stage, specifically in deciding where exactly our target lay, and which exactly of the dizzying number of inspection codes we were overhearing should be used as a cover. John and Stina finally settled on Inspection Class 3, which they determined was a medium-priority code, referring to an important but non-emergency need to put human eyeballs on a particular piece of exterior equipment and make any necessary repairs. In this case, to a junction of flexible draulic lines that just so happened to run right next to a very specific data cable we had our greedy eyes on. Anyone who might have been listening in on our radio chatter, therefore, would have heard Chris pretending to be their manager inside the station, overseeing the work remotely via their suit mics and cams. This was the normal and expected way for exterior repairs to be performed. The only tricky piece of the con had been trumping up an airlock cycle for our fake repair crew's egress, since PC also had oversight of these. The normal EVA process began with someone from a department's management requesting permission from pedestrian control for exterior access for their team. This request had to include information such as the number of people going outside, the specific airlock they wanted to use, and the location on the hall where they would be working. If permission was granted and it usually was, barring occasional safety issues. PC was then required to observe that the traversing crew used proper airlock procedures. This typically just amounted to someone in the control room verifying via remote camera that people were all wearing their pressure suits. Vax suicides were not unknown, after all. Once the hatch was opened, the crew was then expected to acknowledge that they were, indeed, outside and in motion to reaffirm their intended destination, and to announce when they'd finally reached it. If they needed to go anywhere else while out there, or whenever they were ready to return, they had to relay that information to the PC controller as well. The entrance cycle was then monitored in the same way the exit had been, including a head count which had to tally with the number of people who went out to begin with. Finally, the entire procedure was logged and archived for any future reference. It was an elaborate process, but a standardized one throughout settled space, and pretty fast and straightforward when everyone knew what to do. 
While we'd been coming up with this bit of theater in the days prior, Dieter argued for sneaking out and running a bypass on a nearby airlock. We could then send a false confirmation of a cycle process to pedestrian control to convince them that we were inside and needed to go outside. This wasn't a bad idea, but none of us could figure out how to fake the remote video of our people entering and leaving. In the end, Chris came up with a clever, if complex, idea. We waited for a legitimate maintenance team to acknowledge they were going out on the exterior. In this case, a crew sent to repair an electrical short Dieter had caused on a gamma sensor. Chris then called PC on another channel, as if he was a manager from this same crew's department, to say that he was having two of them divert over from the gamma sensor to do some pressing repairs on a different airlock, specifically the one nearest where our target data cable lay. These repairs, of course, would be for this lock's vid system, which Chris would say was showing early signs of failure and needed checking out. Once PC acknowledged this, Dieter and John, standing in readiness right outside the ship, would hustle over to the airlock. Dieter would then disable said vid feed while he supposedly worked on it, and I, pretending to be him, added verbal authenticity. Disabling the vid would be but a moment's work. Dieter and John would really be there to run a total bypass on the lock sensors themselves. This would allow them to send false signals regarding air cycles and hatch usage. Once this part was accomplished, Chris would call with another request, this time for a different EVA team to go out and do urgent maintenance on some particular drolic lines. Dieter, now using his own voice piped to pedestrian control via our little switchboard system rolled together by Stina, would announce they were already inside the very same airlock that was getting its vid repaired. And could they please get permission to go outside already? Because this could turn into a serious problem at any time. And they were ready to cycle, and what was the delay for crying out loud? I who was supposedly standing right there working on the camera, would then verbally confirm that I saw this crew enter the lock wearing their proper attire. Dieter, who was actually standing there, would then trip a fake cycle, which would indicate to PC that someone was opening the airlock from inside the station. Our engineer and John would then leave the vicinity of the lock and proceed on as if they were the new EVA team, chugging across the face of the upper hull. Meanwhile, Chris would keep up a fake dialogue with me, as if I were still just standing there, fighting with the stubborn camera, and he was my micromanaging boss, sitting comfortably in his little office within the station somewhere, telling me how to do my job. It was an exhilarating experience, a positive magic show. Most of it was down to the imaginations and expertise of Chris and Dieter, both longtime freelancers who admitted to having experience with pulling short cons on disparate mercenary jobs in the past. I fancy my insight into what pedestrian control would be expecting to see and hear was integral, as was Stina's expert wrangling of our communications. Really, it was a solid group collaboration and everyone aboard Shady Lady, including the captain, who'd poked holes in more than a few shaky ideas with some fine logical thinking, 
contributed to this ballet of falsehoods. After coming up with the idea, we rehearsed and rehearsed it. Over and over we went, running through the steps for two long days, until we all knew what it was we had to do, when and how we had to do it, and what we had to say to make it all sound mundane. Easily, the most important part of the job had been in locating the right data cable to begin with. John's criticism the previous week about using a conpipe for data duplication and redirection had been astute. Any shunt placed on a main trunk line could be detected quickly. The monitoring process for a data flow through the line, if it was up to modern security specs, and there was no reason to assume it wasn't, would be comprehensive and responsive. Such an approach would undo all our hard work almost immediately. For a few days, it was seeming impossible because of this, and morale was at an ebb. Stina eventually suggested tapping into one of the station's backup lines as a possible workaround, but most of the same problems still existed with that. Even though data lines dedicated to automatic backups were not usually being monitored as closely for traffic delays as those running live data, intrusion detection on the network would be just as vigilant in other ways. But what if other, unrelated systems failed out, requiring the backup data flow to be redirected for a time? Dieter worked with our sensor specialists to come up with a logical area of interest when he was outside searching for this cabling system. He had to go outside anyway to set up some small, localized motion detectors around the patch of midnight that Shady Lady was hidden within. If any workers or soldiers ever approached us on foot, we had to know about it. He'd monkeyed up at least a half-dozen tiny, passive sensors which he placed here and there, on corners and struts surrounding the ship. These were wirelessly keyed to a simple, audible alarm program that Stina had put together in about five minutes flat. After setting them all up and doing a little testing, he proceeded with some surreptitious EVA of a more extended nature. Within a few hours, Dieter was able to locate an armored conduit juncture he was certain held telecommunications lines. Just attempting to breach the intersecting box would set off alarms, but he was able to follow the conduit trail for a bit of distance. It mostly paralleled a power line of moderate voltage, and this proved the most useful part of the operation. With a little engineering mojo, he induced a short in the electrical line which melted through the conduit and several temp sensors. He then gathered up his equipment and scampered back to Shady Lady. Naturally, this short was detectable inside the station, so for a few shifts, there was a lot of EVA activity from station technicians to determine the nature of the problem. Wouldn't you know, part of the cable would have to be replaced. As a standard precaution, any other lines, pipes, or services in the immediate vicinity had to be temporarily shut off or rerouted in case they were accidentally damaged during the repair process. That meant the backup data cable would be unused and unmonitored for a time. 
It also meant that a group of determined infiltrators could then target that same line with a conpipe shunt further on, say 50 meters past the area of the induced short and out of direct sight of the repair crew. Dieter and John, having tramped out to their target spot from the airlock with the fake camera problem, were able to bypass some installed sensors, cut through an access cowling, and crawl inside the outer hull. From there, it was simply a matter of locating the temporarily dead data line, then install the conpipe and shunt, as well as a small communication system for sending and receiving digital information to and from Shady Lady. The location of this hack was considerably far from the ship's hiding place, however, too much for a hardwired connection, and solving this part had required some ingenuity. In the end, John suggested setting up a portable laser comm, maybe mounted on a thin pole above human height, allowing back-and-forth point-to-point communications that couldn't be overheard without directly intercepting the invisible beam. Maintenance, this is Blue Team. Can you test the pressure on that drolic line now? With a wave of the air, Stina activated the laser comm system and immediately we had confirmation of a positive link-up. Blue Team, Chris replied, barely able to keep the grin on his face out of his voice. The pressure looks good. Repeat, everything is green on this end. Clean up the job site and come on back in. Maintenance. Roger your return order. See you in a few. And, in a few, they arrived back at the station airlock, telling PC they were done for the day. I, still pretending to be inside there fixing the vid, and having kept up light camera-related banter all that time, which is a lot harder than you might think, told pedestrian control that the repair crew was now coming in and that they all looked safe. Dieter then tripped the fake cycle once more, this time in reverse, all the while talking with John on the open channel as if they were happy to be done for the day. They signed off with PC and went silent, but remained right there in the airlock. A few minutes later, to make it look good, I asked PC to check the camera. No, they couldn't see anything. How about now? Still nothing. Okay. What about now? At this point, Dieter reconnected the feed, and what do you know? It was fixed. He waved at the camera, just as I said hi to the underperformers in pedestrian control. After passing along some technical double talk about the problem, I pronounced it fully repaired and told them that we would now be rejoining our maintenance crew over at the site of the original short. Then Shady Lady's engineer and SS-1 both walked off out of camera range. A few minutes later, they were back with us, hiding in the shadows. The relief, and I confess, professional pride over having pulled this off was enough to propel Shady Lady's crew into a party mentality again. The next shift was one filled with laughter, more of John's music and the making of amends between Chris and myself. Again. No, no, Dieter was trying to say, looking tired but a bit less hungover than usual and definitely pleased with how things had gone. I thought we were cooked when that lady came by on the scoot out there, but she just waved and kept going. 
Yeah, John gleefully added. Ugly guitar in one hand, a cup of my spooky punch in the other. I didn't even see her until she was past us. I'm crouched there, cables in hand, and this shadow goes by. I almost had a heart attack. You couldn't tell by the audio, I assured him. You guys were smooth. Will pedestrian control send a report to maintenance about the camera problem? Stina asked, seemingly confused by the atmosphere aboard, but also enjoying it, I think. Actually, I have no idea. Why would they? I responded. As far as PC is concerned, it was maintenance itself that spotted the issue and fixed it. There's nothing to report. It felt good to say that with confidence, and everyone was satisfied with a complex job well executed. We only had to wait until station maintenance finished those legitimate repairs and the backup line was returned to service. It had been a fine day, and we were feeling like a fine crew. I laughed a lot and enjoyed the smiles and good humor of all the others. Even Mavis relaxed a bit. But I had an eye on our mission leader the whole time. And I'm pretty sure the captain had two. Bright blue, mechanical, and sharp. I was counting pretty heavily on it being enough. have been listening to Risk Analysis, a science fiction novel written and read by David Collins Rivera. You can contact me at lostinbronx at gmail.com. That's L-O-S-T-N-B-R-O-N-X at gmail. You can also check out my site at cavalcadeaudio.com and sign up for my newsletter, where you'll find exclusive content and early releases. This story is copyright 2016 by the author and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 international license. Feel free to use it for any purpose, even commercial, and I encourage you to do so. The Star Drifter theme is a piece called i by Trunks and can be found on SoundCloud.com. The theme for Risk Analysis is called The Inventor by Zach Beaver and is available on SoundCloud.com. Risk Analysis is a work of fiction and is not based upon nor meant to portray any person, living or dead, nor any particular place or situation. Thank you for listening. Take care.